a Podcast One production. Welcome to Allergies, where Professors Katie Allen and Mimi Tang from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute break down in detail the diagnosis, management, prevention and cure of allergies, as well as the facts and myths about intolerances and treating other diseases like asthma and eczema. We're not always going to be able to control the environment our kids grow up in. So what do we do when they start going to school? In this episode, Professors Katie and Mimi explain to us how we can effectively put together an allergy plan for all situations and how to inject an EpiPen. So, Katie, what are the steps involved in managing our lives around these allergies? Well, I think the first thing to talk about is that we're talking about food allergy. Sure. Um, and so um, the, the mainstay of food allergy is avoidance of the food. So we call that allergen avoidance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's the underpinning principle for keeping kids and patients and you know, fat, well, persons safe. Um, and then there's the second aspect of it, which is what to do if they accidentally do eat the food. Um, and how to manage an acute allergic reaction. So they're kind of the same, the sort of main aspects of management. And then the third part about it probably is trying to find ways to cure them, and that's what we'll talk about in a future episode. So with regards to allergen avoidance, of course, avoiding food is kind of a tricky thing to navigate um, because every single day uh, you eat food. So it makes a huge difference. Um, And so we can talk about in the context of eating at home, uh, eating food at school, uh, eating food um, when you go on camps, Mm -hmm. uh, go to restaurants, uh, you know, it affects everything. So uh, when people are diagnosed with a food allergy, they really need to sit down and think about uh, when they're eating, which is all the time. So it affects every aspect of their lives. And, And it can be quite overwhelming for people. Yeah, and so as doctors, you know, we, we have to say to patients, well, we don't have a cure for you right now. you just got to avoid the food. But we know that they're actually not going to be able to avoid the food with any real success in the longer term. So most kids will have an accidental ingestion leading to a reaction sometime in the next couple of years, and we know that. And that's why, of course, um, we're, we're trying to develop treatments um, that can make a difference. But as Katie said, because it's completely a part of their life constantly Mm -hmm. we know also that you know the effort it takes to try to avoid the food all the time the unexpected nature of an accidental exposure that can cause a reaction and then the continuing fear of that they might actually have a fatal reaction causes a really significant um, impact on the on their quality of life yeah so, I mean, that's the problem that we face today as doctors looking after patients with food allergies. It's actually really not very satisfying at all mm-hmm. what we can offer to them. And I think if they've got one food allergy, it's easier. If they've got many food allergies, um, it's difficult. It's also different what age they are. So if they're a young baby and the mother is having to avoid lots of foods um, or you know, in the baby's diet, it can be very overwhelming and quite, quite confronting for them. Um, the interesting thing is allergists is that uh, we often deal with anxious parents when the babies are first diagnosed. And I always say to them, you're really anxious now, but you can control what your child is being fed. Um, 
as, as uh, allergists, we get anxious when they reach adolescence. And that's for two reasons. Firstly, they're going out into the world and having to learn for themselves how to manage. And we want to keep them um, able to engage with the world in a positive way without being overly frightened. But they're, you know, adolescents and they're, they're sometimes taking risks that may be <laughs> unnecessary. You know, might be starting to play with alcohol. Um, yep. That can change their judgment. We all know that adolescence judgment can be also slightly risk-taking. Yep. So there's a lot more things to be nervous about. Um, and often the kids have had the food allergy for five or ten years, so the parents are like, yeah, well, we're used to it, they haven't had any problem. Yeah. And they reach this adolescent period and they're more risk-taking, uh, their bodies are changing, uh, they don't know themselves, they can't remember the allergic reaction from ten years ago, the, the child themselves. And so they go out in the community and there is evidence that children who are adolescent and young adults uh, maybe not more likely to have anaphylaxis than babies, but they are more likely to die from anaphylaxis. So I say to families, you know, you're anxious now, but there really hasn't been um, a, a, an absolutely definite death from food allergy anaphylaxis under the age of five in Victoria in the last 30 to 40 years. So it's very uncommon under the age of five to die from anaphylaxis. But most of the deaths occurring in around the world are occurring in adolescence and young adulthood. We don't know the reason for that. And in fact, we've been doing a big study called the School Nut Study to try and understand that. We don't want to blame adolescents. Uh, it's not, it couldn't, it may not because they're more risk taking. Yeah. It just may be their, the condition changes. So oh, as they're older, they're more likely to have asthma. Um, they may be likely, likely to have a, a persistent food allergy such as peanut or nut allergy and we know the nut allergies are more likely to cause anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. uh, they may be less on guard, it's true, or they may be drinking alcohol which may aggravate the situation as well. So there's many um, possibilities and we don't want to put um, the blame um, on adolescents but we do know that adolescence is a risky time. You know, at the end of the day when you make the diagnosis of food allergy and, and the parent often says, so what can you do for me? Um, the answer is that, well, this is now going to affect your life ongoing until the food allergy goes all the way goes away by itself. And I think that's not very satisfying because I can't fix it for them. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I have to tell them instead is, you know, like what Katie's just talked about, give them a lot of support and advice and education around how to avoid having a reaction in the first place, but then knowing that they will have a reaction, helping them to learn how to treat and manage um, their food allergy reaction, it, which... It's probably also worth pointing out with regards to when we're diagnosing it, that we tend to talk about two types of food allergy, the transient and the persistent. And there are some foods that are more likely to be transient, meaning they are more likely to be outgrown, and some that are more likely to be persistent. Yep. So cow's milk, egg, and probably even wheat and soy, um, about 80% of children will outgrow that food allergy by age five. And um, for peanut, egg, shellfish, and, and fish, um, only about 20% of it of children will outgrow it by about age five. So they're quite different prognostically from the point of view of whether you're likely or not to grow, outgrow it, which comes back to this question you asked us in an earlier episode, why did they get food allergy in the first place or why are people allergic to some foods in yeah. the first place? We don't know why people are some... Uh, well, some foods are more likely to have persistent allergy as well. Um, there is this concept of um, uh, this sticky allergen, so this, this st or the sticky antigen, this, the, they're more sticky with the, uh, the antibodies and therefore they're more likely to persist. But there's also this other concept of what we call conformational epitope. So when we think of an egg allergen, um, we think of it a little bit like a protein, which is like a pearl necklace. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... Um, they're, they're, it can be wrapped up in a, a pearl necklace that the body recognises as a clump or it can be laid out as a linear string. 
Um, and people who are allergic to uh, both the conformational and the linear are more likely to have a persistent allergy than those who are allergic uh, just to the conformational. And the way that we work that out at a clinical level is that children who are allergic to egg as well, uh, just egg in scrambled eggs and boiled eggs, as well as egg in baked goods, which mm -hmm. is tiny amounts of egg that have been cooked at high temperature, uh, are more likely to have persistent egg allergy than those who are, are only allergic to, say, raw or semi-cooked egg. So the uh, transient food allergies, egg and cow's milk, we have some prognostic understanding that if you're allergic to all forms of egg, you're more likely to have persistent egg and cow's milk allergy. Um, however, with peanut and tree nut allergy, which are the ones that people are more likely to have persistent allergy to, uh, they're allergic to all, all types of peanut and, and tree nut. And we don't have a distinction between uh, egg, oh, sorry, peanut and peanut and baked goods, for instance. And so that, distinction. that persistence, does that carry on for the lifetime? Well, 20% will grow out of it over a period of time. So you've, you've, you if you've got nut and nut, basically nut or seafood allergy, you're most likely to have persistent allergy, mm -hmm. uh, but one in five people will grow, uh, outgrow it. If you've got egg and cow's milk in early life, then you, four out of five will outgrow it. So they're yeah. kind of reversed It's statistics. interesting though, because some of the recent studies are suggesting that maybe kids with the egg milk allergies are actually growing out of them later than they used to. You know, some of the older studies suggested, like Katie said, that 80% would grow out of it before they started school, let's say. Mm. Whereas now uh, other studies are coming out showing that maybe it's actually all the way through to adolescence before they grow out of it. And I don't know if this is a real phenomenon or if it's just one of these wrinkles in studies that are being done in a different way. Um, but if it is real, then I think it is a bit of a problem for us because it does mean that the burden of people, the, the, si the number of people that have food allergies in schools is increasing. And so there's a lot of work in, in the school sector um, around how can we, how can schools help keep children safe yep. um, during, that was actually, during school. That was actually going to be my next question is what happens when someone comes to see you with signs uh, of an allergy? When people come to see us, we actually explain to them what an allergic reaction is. Uh, we tell them how to avoid the allergen. We give them written information and we give them an allergy action plan, which they can then take to the school. Okay. Um, and in that allergy action plan, we explain to them the difference between serious and non-serious, as we discussed in um, episode two, um, about the difference between a serious and a non-serious reaction. Um, and then um, we also may or may not give them an EpiPen. That's an adrenaline auto-injector. And that is important for um, some people um, do carry an EpiPen and some people don't. So first of all, we need to do those four steps in the clinic before they then go out into the school environment. Um, it is worth noting with the school environment that uh, school is becoming more and more important because the allergy epidemic leading edge is growing up. So we think the allergy epidemic started in the mid-90s, but that cohort of children are now reaching teenagers and young adults. And that's what Mimi's point is, is that we're starting to see potentially persistence of disease or condition that we hadn't seen before. We're seeing larger volumes of kids coming through schools. We are actually worried um, as an allergy community that there's going to be more anaphylaxis in an older age group that are potentially more likely to be fatal. Mm -hmm. So this is a really important time for the community to start to understand not just to keep them or their kids safe, but also their kids' friends safe. Yeah. There's two types of allergy action plan. There's a red one and a green one. So the red, uh, the green one is the um, allergy action plan that people might take to schools or to camps. We, we're calling them EpiPen because that's the only adrenaline auto-ejector that is available in Australia. But I will point out that there's been a chronic shortage over the last year or two of EpiPens um, and there needs to be some... Um, 
uh, opportunity for a second provider to become available because at the moment we're kind of held to account by one company providing an adrenaline auto-injector. Now, is there a shortage because of... Manufacturing uh, problems. Yeah, many. Okay, so yeah, so it's outside demand. of our control. Um, and we've had a long, big supply for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, demand for a long pl- time, but there's been um, supply shortages. Some of them, some of them have been actually held up at the docks as well. But um, we are concerned as a community about um, an alternative, mechan- uh, an alternative um, uh, adrenaline auto injector provider. But the issue is that we spend a lot of time time training those children who or families who require adrenaline auto injectors not just when to use them, as we talked about, serious versus non-serious reactions, but also how to use them. Mm-hmm. So the how and when of when to use an adrenaline auto-injector is a very important role that the doctor needs to play so that, um, you know, someone's having an acute reaction, how is it they're going to do something to manage their child? And in fact, Al, uh, Mimi Allergy and I have, uh, have developed uh, a free online app called Allergy Pal for this very purpose because we our lips are bleeding from explaining how and when to use an EpiPen yeah. and we think it's very uh, unsafe if people haven't been properly trained. So we've made available this free online app. They just go to iTunes uh, to train people how and when to use the adrenaline auto-injector or EpiPen. But on top of that, it's like having um, a management tool in their pocket because it's on, on their iPhone um, and they can just shoot it through, as in not shoot the adrenaline auto-injector, but actually um, they can send as a link the plan that's their child, the allergy action plan, from their phone to a friend or a grandmother's phone who's looking after their child so they can actually move it over very easily. The the key thing about the Allergy Pal app that's so um, incredibly useful is that whilst we can spend a lot of time teaching patients and families about what is a serious or not serious reaction, what to do in a serious reaction or not serious reaction, and they might even know it perfectly well at the end of this time and they're they're smart people, so they know what to do and they could answer a multi-choice question correctly each time, let's say. But in the heat of a moment, in, in a crisis situation, all of this information just flies out of their head. And, I mean, in fact, even doctors. Doctors doctors in emergency might well have, you know, a, a reluctance, let's say, to treat with adrenaline um, in situations of anaphylaxis. It's actually well known that that's the case. So, so one of the most important things in this Allergy Pal app that Katie and I have developed is that um, it's got one platform, one feature where you can just select from a drop-down list the symptoms that your child is experiencing or you yourself are experiencing if that's the case Mm -hmm. and the app goes ahead and just tells you what actions you should do now and so it automatically will tell you do antihistamines and stay close to the person who's reacting and don't start running around um, if it's just a mild reaction or if it's a serious reaction, the app will tell you You need to give the EpiPen. Mm -hmm. Don't let the person run around, call the ambulance. Then after that, you can call the emergency contact, recheck symptoms and so on. So it's really helpful because it gives in the right sequence what you should do and also takes away that responsibility of, oh, should I be giving the EpiPen or not? Many people just find that decision too difficult to make. So there's four aspects of the app. There's the actual action plan that you just photograph and put into the app so you can carry around a digital form of this allergy action plan that every doctor gives to every child with food allergy. Mm-hmm. And where's the piece of paper? We don't know how to manage things. So, And then, you 
know, anyone can look at it. There's also a general information about what specifically your child needs to avoid, when do they need to avoid it, some general education information that people who are looking after a child um, for you may want to look at, whether it's a friend or a relative. Then there's the um, act now aspect of it, um, react now, sorry, aspect, which is if you're having an allergy um, episode, you, you push the tab and you'll move through each of those steps. And then the last one is share so that you can send that whole app with the allergy plan to somebody there, else. There's also this other feature that's called avoid reaction and it allows parents to put in individual individualised instructions for their own child. So they may, for example only want their child to eat foods that they've prepared themselves and they can leave a message in there that says um, James is only to have the food I've prepared in the red lunchbox in his backpack or they may have left a lunchbox full of snacks for their child in the classroom and they can leave all of those specific instructions. But what Katie was mentioning just now, the last uh, feature I think is the most valuable of all, which is a share function. So after you've downloaded the app yourself, you've uploaded the action plan, you've populated the avoid reaction section with specific instructions, you can now share your app with all of this information in it to a person who you're leaving your child with. So I now have to leave my child because he's going to a party. And rather than me having to go through and explain to the family now, um, one, what foods he's allowed to eat or not eat, but two, should a reaction occur, how to actually manage that reaction? Well, you can um, actually send it can, the night before. You can. You can send it the so night they, before. So I've, so I've they gone can to study it. I've gone to birthday parties and the mother has turned up with a, uh, someone's, you know, got 50 kids running around. They're up to their arms in trying to organise, you know, party pies and sausage rolls. And this <laughs> mum comes in with a, a bag and says, my child has anaphylaxis. Here you go. And the it mother goes, overwhelms what? The person, what? I've yeah. got 50 kids here. What am I going to do? What do I have? Can they eat mm. this or not eat that? And so they're not prepared. And then the mother goes, don't worry, they will be fine. And that's <laughs> the last thing a family yeah. needs to hear. And, and actually the share link's really clever because you, the person receiving the link doesn't have to download the app at all. It's literally a link to your app that you've yeah, populated. Okay. So they're not downloading extra apps, which people hate to do. Yep. We think it's a pretty good app. <laughs> well, we, we, we love it because it actually mm. means that we can, you know, we obviously as doctors can't help ourselves. We always have to go through the whole explanation ourselves. But we have so much information to give to a patient when they come in. We don't know how much they retain and remember. And if we give the information, that's great. But then if we give this as well, then they can go home and digest the information. I mean, we always give written information when we when they leave, but this now means they can never lose it because you're always attached to your iPhone. It's, it's with, with you with all the time. Times. I mean, I, 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 I myself, when patients come in, I have to explain to them how and when to use an EpiPen. It, for years and years, people were concentrating on the how bit. And I remember an allergist in Sweden saying to me, oh, I've worked out how to get them to know how to use it. Um, I get them to deliver the EpiPen while they're in the rooms. And I, and I said, what, when they're not having anaphylaxis? <laughs> oh, yeah, they're just sitting there. And I say, here you are, use your EpiPen. You know, I'll give you a new prescription, use it now. <laughs> like, that's a bit punitive. And he said, they never forget how to use it again. Because that's the thing to remind people is adrenaline's a natural substance from our adrenal glands. So we're not suggesting you do this at home, but it's not, uh, if you, if someone miss diagnoses it and gives it inadvertently, it's not going to be a problem because it's a natural occurring substance. It might make your heart race a bit faster and might make you breathe a bit faster, but it won't really um, cause any harm. But if you don't know how and when to use the EpiPen, you might deliver it to the wrong person in the wrong way. So I, I have a, a very terrible story. I had a friend who's very educated, um, you know, she's a lawyer and she's 
you know, they had been to see an allergist every year with her son for five years and her son had peanut allergy and, and, and risk of anaphylaxis and had an EpiPen. And this is a very well-renowned allergist. So I had assumed that this friend uh, knew how and when to use an EpiPen. And I said to her, why don't you, she said, oh, I'm not so sure I'm that good at using the EpiPen. And I said, well, if you ever find, you know, an, an expired one off. And she said, no, that, that's a good idea. What do I do? And I said, well, you can fire it off into an orange rather than throwing it in the bin and just see how it works. Yeah. Anyway, she rang me back five minutes later, breathless, because she'd actually put it into a thumb. <laughs> now, the problem with that is there's actually on the internet these terrible photos of needles sticking through thumbnails because they, they're quite decent-sized needles. Um, and she'd put it actually between her thumb and first finger, so I still don't know how she managed to get it into that space. Oh. But I said, you better run off to the Alfred and have, actually have it checked out because you actually could lose a finger. You know, it's quite dangerous to put it into the, into the finger. But more importantly, it, it, what it told me was I should never, as an allergist, expect or, un, you know, except that someone has been properly trained how mm-hmm. and when to use an EpiPen. Absolutely. And that taught me I shouldn't have said that to her without showing her myself because she wasn't my well, patient, she was my friend, but <laughs> yeah. she never did that mistake again. You well, this brings work, me. Well, this brings me to a, we did a study at the Royal Children's Hospital of, about probably 10 years ago 15 now, now, 15, probably, yeah. yeah. But it was pretty interesting because doctors um, ourselves, we aren't taught to do this as part of medical training. Because, you know, the allergy... We are now, I think. You we think weren't there I 15 years I'm, ago. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure because most... I don't know that um, using an EpiPen is still part of the training. I don't mm. think it is. Mm. And it's not intuitive. And in this particular study, 16% of the doctors injected their thumb with a trainer. So the, the point is... They put um, their the, thumb on the wrong end because they think it's a click. Oh, like a so, pen. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, so it's blue, blue it on, to the sky, orange like, to the thigh, and you say, keep your finger away from the end. It's not a pen, like a clicking pen. Yes, yeah. and actually, to be fair, that study was hold. using the old EpiPen, which yeah. was much more difficult mm. to use, much more easy to mix up because yep. the one end was black and the needle end was grey and it was a bit hard to tell the difference. Whereas now the EpiPen has actually been redesigned and it's got a blue blue end, which is the safe end, and yeah. the orange end is the needle <laughs> end. So I'm, I'm sure it's less common now. But one of the first things we tell families uh, and patients is that they have to avoid their food allergen, which... Actually, we're very lucky in Australia and, in fact, in the US and the UK. So that's pretty much rule number one, isn't it? Just avoid. Yeah. Just avoid. Yeah, yeah it's, just avoid it's, it. It's uh, location, location, location. <laughs> avoid, avoid, avoid. And we spend a lot of time explaining what foods have them or don't have them and we have lots of handouts and we have dietitians on hand and that's the main one. It's the most important thing. Yeah. People think about the EpiPen but allergen avoidance, you never get into trouble it's if more, you avoid Yeah, the more important. We're lucky in Australia because the food labelling laws require that if there is any part of an allergen in the food uh, as an ingredient, it has to be listed as that um, whole antigen. No, no, no as no. that whole antigen in the ingredient list. So, for example, in the past, a long time ago, you might have albumin or lactalbumin, and you wouldn't know that milk. that was egg and milk, <laughs> whereas now the laws are that you have to, if it's ovalbumin, you don't write ovalbumin in the ingredient list, you write egg. Yeah. So plain English. Plain yeah. English. Parents can actually just read the ingredient list and check if that food 
yeah. that they're allergic to yeah, is right. part of the ingredient. Yeah. But I'm going to hand over to Katie about the um, may contain traces of because that is a huge problem at the moment. And mm. Katie's been working on this especially. Mm. So, so um, allergen um, allergen avoidance is obviously in the hands of the individual and the patient, but also manufacturers, yeah. and they have to deal with this all the time. And Australia is leading the way internationally with uh, labelling, both mandatory labelling and what we call precautionary labelling. So mandatory labelling, which is taken up by almost every country in the world, means that the big eight we talked about before, cow's mm-hmm. milk, egg, wheat, soy, tree nuts, peanuts, seafood and shellfish um, are in plain English written like that on the label. And um, people are very good at reading the label saying, yep, it contains peanut, I'll avoid that. Peanut butter contains peanut, I'll avoid Mm -hmm. that. Um, But then there's this second form of labelling called precautionary labelling. And that is an advisory statement that is not regulated currently. It's a form of uh, self-regulation by industry and manufacturers um, about something that may contain or Mm -hmm. may may have traces of or uh, is made on the same equipment or may be in factory, may be present. So there's a there's dozens of different precautionary statements, so there's not a unified statement, which yep. is problematic. Uh, they mean different things to different people, different things to different manufacturers. But is it just manufacturers trying Covering to cover them, their own? Covering that's right. Yep. So we've been working um, here in Australia with the manufacturing industry. So um, uh, as, as Mimi just mentioned, then uh, uh, Vital, which is a, a precautionary labelling system that the food and um, grocery um, bureau has um, worked very hard over a 10-year period to develop. Um, and that is based on if there is um, the possibility that there's um, contamination in there, then they need to put maybe present, which is one particular statement. Yeah. But all the other statements are still out there. So the well, poor well, consumer... They've actually gone through a proper risk assessment's the point. They've actually had to formally assess the risk. And if they feel there is a certain level of risk, then they have to say yeah. maybe, maybe present. present. But all those other ones aren't linked to any risk assessment whatsoever. They're, the companies can just put them in, may yep. contain traces of... Yep. You know, made on the and same so manufacturers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the tricky thing, however, and I think you know, we've done some work into saying how many of these foods actually are contaminated and, and in fact, they're incredibly low. So the Australian manufacturing environment is very safe at the moment and that's why um, a lot of allergists um, are starting to sort of say, well, they're so ubiquitous. We know that 65% of all edible packaged goods now have some form of precautionary labelling. Mm-hmm. We think about 30% of it is the maybe present, which is the ones that are very good, yep. um, but the other 70% are all sorts of different ones. Now, everyone's been focusing on the maybe present and the may contain and all those things, but in fact, about 30% of foods are unlabeled. Now, those foods are the ones that children and families or kids with and adults with allergies should avoid. But the unlabeled foods might be unlabeled for two reasons. They might have been through a risk assessment like Vital, which is international standards, is very safe, and they've assessed that it's safe. And so those unlabeled foods that have been through a risk assessment such as Vital are safe to eat. But... If you're a small bespoke manufacturing company and you don't have something like Vital, mm-hmm. um, you might leave it unlabeled because you don't know what's in there and you haven't done a risk assessment tool and it might be quite unsafe. And in fact, foods that are imported from Asia um, are often contaminated with things and they have no labels. So at the moment, we have 30% of all packaged goods have no label and possibly half of them are very safe 
and the other half of them are very unsafe. So what we've been calling for is for labelling about whether you've used a risk assessment tool. So if you've used Vital, declare it, V for Vital. We've used Vital and we know that if it's got V, it's been through a risk assessment tool and we will tell you whether it's safe or not safe to eat. Now, the problem is it gets to a yes minister type environment because when I speak to the manufacturers about saying, let them say it's safe to eat, they say, well, we can't be sure. Yeah, mm. so they don't want to take that risk. They don't risk. want to take the risk of an unlabeled food saying it's safe to eat. Yeah. So I say don't say it's safe to eat, just say it's been risk Tested. assessed. Yeah. It's been assessed. It's been assessed, mm. yeah. Because at the moment, and they say, oh, we'll get to that at some point in the future. I'm like, but in the meantime, thousands and thousands and thousands of food is being, you know, items of food are being eaten every single day. Yeah. So these, it's a Russian roulette waiting to explode. I think the problem really is exactly that, that the, the foods that do contain and may contain traces of labelling, so I'm excluding the maybe present group, okay? Yeah. If you see a may contain traces of labelling, that food... So just to clarify, may be present is vital. So yeah. may contain yeah. is not vital. Yes. So vital is yeah. good and not vital is who knows. Yeah, so Vital's the only one where there's been a formal risk assessment and they use the term may be present. So setting those foods aside, um, the, the, all the other precautionary labels, Katie just mentioned that, you know, 80% of foods have that sort of labelling and 30%, 20%, can't do my math No, no, now. it's, it's, 70, it's 70, 65%. 65%, 65% and 35% do not. But the point is that a food that does bear that may contain traces of is just as likely to not contain the food as it is to contain the food. Yeah. In fact, it's more likely not to contain the food, okay? Yeah. And then the ones that don't have that labelling, it's probably the same level of chance whether or not there is that allergen contaminating the food. So I, I, the poor patient is stuck in this situation where you don't actually know what may contain traces of means at all. And we don't want people to think that, well, if it doesn't say may contain traces of, it's safe, which many people think is the case. And if it does say may contain traces of, it's not safe because that's not not correct. Yeah. Really. So what's, what's, what's actually ended up happening in Australia is many allergists say buyer beware. So everyone's passing the buck to the poor consumer. Yep. We know that only about 5% of kids or less will react to these trace levels. As you can see, Mimi and I get very excited about because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those it's are the incredibly things... incredibly interesting. Well, those yeah. are the well, things that are affecting is, people every yeah. single yeah. day. And you know what? Allergists, our job is to keep our patients safe when they come in. But it's not our job to get it politicised and advocate for it. But I can tell you, again, we're out there saying, please, can someone do something about it? And we, you know, have Centre of Food and Allergy Research that Mimi and I are part of, it's a national centre. We've had round tables, we've bought um, consumers, we've brought manufacturers together, Choice Magazine, we've brought the regulators together and everyone goes, yes, yes, yes and then we can't work out how to make something happen. Yeah. This is the point. I, I mean, I sit on committees, I sit, yeah. and you do too, but I sit on the Food Standards um, Subcommittee on Allergen Avoidance and everyone goes, we kind of get what you're talking about, but they sort of look at me in a bemused way. It's very frustrating actually. I mean, I'm a gastroenterologist by training um, and uh, celiac disease has become more common and people have got on, on the gluten-free boat um, and there are whole supermarkets, restaurants are aware of it. Um, in the UK, there's now legislation about mandatory labelling um, of um, all recipes and or, or food, which the, the, the expensive chefs get a bit upset about. They don't want to have to declare their secret sources. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, there is a lot more safety out there in the community. So that takes us to, you know, kids in the community and schools. We talked before about the red and the green plan. So the allergy action plan uh, that just has an antihistamine for tr treatment of um, minor symptoms 
um, is the green allergy action plan. The red one is the one that has an EpiPen in it. And so if you've got an allergy that's, if you've been given an EpiPen by your doctor, then you'll have a red plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are used in the school environment um, and schools now. And Mimi can be really proud of this because she was on the Victorian Government Anaphylaxis Committee for this. But um, Australia was one of, if not the first, sorry, Victoria was one of, if not the first government to legislate um, that uh, training and education about anaphylaxis management awesome. in schools has happened. And, and really the rest of the world has followed that. And Mimi, you might like to talk about some of that background, but it's a very important ministerial order that keeps kids safe. And we argue now that kids are probably, uh, schools are one of the safest places in the world for kids to be now. But I will say before you go on to talk about that, that one thing that isn't helpful is that um, some schools and, and parents often start to initiate this. Some schools try to do to do food banning in school environment and, and that's not helpful because if you try and keep a food out of a school, it's virtually impossible. What if grandma's making lunch and she doesn't know about yeah. you know, what can be taken? Uh, there are more food allergies than just peanuts and tree nuts. Um, there are kids with cow's milk and egg. And if you try and ban cow's milk from an environment, then you're taking out margarine out of all the sandwiches. I mean, how fair is that for all those kids who don't have allergy? So the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, as well as Mimi and myself and all the experts, say we should encourage kids once they're at school Uh, not to food share. I think the other thing to mention is, you know, Australia um, has a national approach to managing food allergies. We should probably start there. Katie's mentioned a couple of times these action plans. They are um, emergency instructions for families on how to manage a reaction if it occurs that have been developed by our Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy. That's ASCIA, the acronym is ASCIA, and ASCIA um, is one of the very few professional societies for allergy in the world that have developed a national plan that everybody uses. We actually have the entire population in Australia of doctors, including general practitioners, paediatricians, adult physicians and allergists. We are all using this great plan and it was developed. Uh, I was lucky enough to sit on the Anaphylaxis Working Party when this was developed. It took us a very long time to get consensus amongst these allergy specialists to say this is the best way to manage allergic reactions. And we've put that down on a plan and now everybody has access to that. And not to reiterate the Allergy Pal, that's why Allergy Pal's so cool, because instead of it just being a bit of paper that waves around, gets, you know, torn up like an old dollar note mm. or, you know, five dollar note or whatever. Before, before <laughs> they were plastic. Age, Mimi. I know, before they were plastic. But um, it, it, No, they were four dollars for coins. Where, where, where and tear. Just some paper. Yeah, just some paper. <laughs> um, at least it's with them at all times because most people, we tell them you need to keep the plan with you because if you're with someone else, they have a reaction, someone needs a reference guide of what to do. Well, that's why Allergy Pal's so great because that takes that away. Uh, don't we have the most amount of reactions? Yeah, in- I, I always, well, food allergy I always say, because I'm the one who's been describing the prevalence of of food allergy, I always say we're unfortunately the food allergy capital of the world. I want us to be the food capital of the world, don't you? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think what Katie highlights to me, it just sort of penny dropped as Katie was talking about it. The management of food allergy is really complex. It requires a comprehensive approach, not just for the patient, but for the environments that they're going to be exposed to. And earlier on in this session, Katie mentioned about restaurants, and that has been a risk situation for many patients. Um, Most reactions, accidental reactions occurring outside of the home where parents or patients are not in control of what they're actually eating 
and how it's cooked. And there's been a big push in Australia to now uh, bring on board the food industry um, in addition to schools and daycares in this sort of risk minimisation approach. And I think part of it, it's come, I, I don't know if you're aware, but in the UK recently a, a man died um, having eaten a curry at a restaurant and the owner of that premise was actually charged and I think sent to jail wow. uh, because in recognition of the fact there is, is actually a responsibility care, yeah, yeah, really. by food, manuf- yeah. food, food suppliers, yeah. not just the manufacturers, but restaurant owners, food mm. suppliers, um, to be sure that they correctly advise individuals of when there is an allergen in the food. And mm. this uh, restaurant had replaced peanut. Uh, a lot of curries are made with cashew meal and... Um, Cashew is much more expensive than peanut. Mm. And so this particular restaurant had replaced the cashew meal with peanut meal, yep. but they hadn't advertised that fact because they were basically replacing an ingredient of quality with a, mm. a lesser quality ingredient. Mm. And they hadn't told everybody. And this patient, this, this whole person had actually asked. Mm. I have to say, as an allergist, and I know, Mimi, you'd be the same, I often wonder which one have I just educated that's going to have anaphylaxis that could end up in the morgue? You know, have I done it right? You yeah. really, I mean, literally, it sounds like I'm worried, but it's just I mustn't forget to tell them X, Y and Z. And that's why, again, getting back to the allergy pal, I'm so reassured because they can always go back and look at it again. But they need to hear it from us. They need to hear it clearly. Sometimes the mums are in there in our rooms. They've got other kids. They're running around. And I feel like saying, send the kids outside. This is so important. You can't get this wrong. You're talking about your kid's life. Um, but they're, they're tired. They're distracted. And there's yep. a lot of information they have to take on board. It's a whole program to manage somebody's mm. allergies. That's why this podcast is great, because now it's going to be down on digital sound. If you want to find out more, Katie and Mimi have created a free smartphone app called Allergy Pal, which has lots of life-saving features that can help keep your kids safe and make your life that little bit easier. Pick it up from your favourite app store. Allergies was presented by Professor Katie Allen and Professor Mimi Tang and was produced by me, Matt Dwyer, with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Join us in our next episode as we explain what anaphylaxis is and how we diagnose it. For more apps, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app and listen for free.